0: Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And
1: we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact that they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general.
0: Yes. And you can find us, follow us on social media. We have an Instagram, a Facebook, um, which is at From Skirts to Scrubs. And then we have a Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. So you can check us out there. You can also check out our website for more information on our episodes, show notes, sources, merch, etc. cetera. And that is from skirts dot scrubs.com.
1: Yeah. And if you like our episodes, you can also subscribe to us on any podcasting app. And you can also leave us a rating and review. And Apple Podcasts is the best place to do that.
0: Okay. So we have a fun episode today. I think you'll like it. We'll see. I'm excited. Today. We are going to be talking about a procedure called electroconvulsive therapy or ECT for short. I know. Yeah. (laughs) So for background, I was going to be doing this full like biography episode. But then while I was on my psychiatry rotation last month, I got to sit in on an ECT session. Mm. And the doctor I was working with during the section, Dr. Dan Maxner. He was really wonderful. And I told him I was interested in history. And so then he gave me basically like a quick overview of the history of ECT. And I just thought it was so interesting and so cool to hear him talk about it that I kind of got curious myself. And so I went down this whole like research rabbit hole instead of studying for my shelf exam. Typical. And that's how, yeah, that's how we ended up here. So I'm excited to tell you the story. I think you'll enjoy it. It's it's pretty fun. I'm hooked yeah. already. Already on <laughs> it. So Char, tell me what you know about ECT. Like, what is it? Maybe any impressions or initial thoughts that you have about like shock therapy? You know the drill.
1: Um. Yeah. So I guess I don't know, like impressions from like maybe like being used in history. Is it being used like wrongfully or like? Wrongfully on people who are perceived to have disorders, and like you change them by using it. And then I might be incorrect because I didn't learn much about it, but I think today it's used on conditions that are kind of like refractory to medications. Like if meds aren't working, mm-hmm. you try ECT. Mm-hmm. I don't really know that much about it, other than maybe it wasn't used so greatly in the past. And today they're trying to like use it when it's necessary. That's all I know. <laughs>
0: Hey, that's a good start. We all got to start somewhere. The baseline. And you're right. You're right in those things. Um, so we'll just like elaborate more on that, kind of share more the stories, really interesting of how it came about. So I think yeah, we should how'd just they come to shock. Jump in.
1: People. I want to learn. Let's yeah. go.
0: All right. So to start, just like what is ECT? Tell me. So ECT is a medical treatment most commonly used in patients with severe depression and bipolar disorder that is, like you said, Char, treatment refractory, meaning that it doesn't respond to treatment. So mm-hmm. usually it's like, oh, this person has this condition. They, it's like a mood disorder um, and they need treatment, but they've tried one, two, three medications and it's just not working. And so that's what treatment refractory means. It's like, no medication is working. This sucks. And (laughs) it's usually, um, you know, when we try to think about employing ECT. And then another time that we think about using ECT is in patients that are catatonic. So catatonia is basically when you have almost like too much muscle tone or like essentially it's a group of symptoms, um, where you have kind of repetitive purposeless overactivity. So a lot of people will have like repetitive movements of their arms or legs. Um, and also you have rigidity. So your muscles are just resistant mm-hmm. to movement. Um, there's also this thing called waxy flexibility where like a person who's catatonic, if you move their arm and like put them in a certain position, it'll stay in that position. So even though you tell them to relax. Yeah. And they don't even realize. So overall, these people are just typically pretty immobile or seemingly pretty immobile. They don't talk very much, things like that. So it's a pretty severe syndrome to have. And it's associated with several mood disorders, like severe bipolar, severe depression, um, and schizophrenia as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then another indication to use ECT besides like catatonia is for people who are really, really depressed. Um, because if you are very depressed, you tend to be losing a lot of weight. You're not eating anything, drinking anything. And these people just aren't able to take care of themselves. And so why would you think, Shar? why do you think we would want to use ECT on these people? Mm. Like, what would you want to typically do for someone who's like super depressed?
1: You want to stabilize their mood so they're able to continue living their
0: life normally. Exactly. So what would you give them, maybe?
1: Usually give them meds that like increase the serotonin. In their brain.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Like so you'd give them chemical people. Yeah, you'd give them like a happy pill, like a SSRI, something that like increases your serotonin. But the thing about those medications is that they can take Forever. You know, four to six weeks <laughs> to, to hit a therapeutic dose or like a good dose. It's a long time um, when you're very depressed. Exactly. And so ECT can actually take less time than that for you to see results which is why for people who are very depressed or in a state where they cannot take care of themselves they you can start ECT in the hospital oh. and start to see results sooner than you would if you sent someone home on an SSRI and then just watch them wither and decay right yeah and so um typically ECT sessions there's usually 10 to 12 that are done for like one kind of therapeutic course of ECT. That doesn't mean that you can't do more. You can. Some people are on maintenance ECT. So maybe their condition is treatment refractory, but they have to stay on ECT like longer. So they just get smaller uh, doses of electrical current, things like that. So Mm. it's pretty fluid, but 10 to 12 sessions is, is pretty typical. And you can't do it every single day. Um, You and you can't do it like multiple times in a day. So, typically, patients like, for example, if you're in the hospital, you'll have like a treatment Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Okay. With the other days as off days. But you don't need to be in the hospital to get ECT. Sometimes people like will drive in. I mean, they have to have a family member drive them in, but they can come in to get ECT and then leave. Yeah. So, when I watched a few sessions of ECT, this is kind of the way it panned out. So, Imagine little Alicia standing in this like OR-like room in her N95 mask, talking to this doctor. He's telling her about the history of ECT. She's watching ECT happen. It's all going on. So the patient- Quite a picture you've painted. Was wheeled into the room. I know, very specific. So basically the patient comes into the room um, and they're given some medications by the nurse anesthetists. So it's usually a combination of general anesthesia, which will put you to sleep and muscle relaxants. And then once the patient's asleep, the ECT tech will take one or two kind of like current stimulators, um, which just kind of look like these giant magnet things and put them against the patient's head and generate an electrical current. So doing this produces a seizure in the brain. And Shar, why do we, yeah, it is kind of Frankenstein, but it's not as scary as, as mm-hmm. it seems because why do we feel like ECT is super safe these days? Because producing a seizure sounds pretty scary Mm -hmm. but something about what i just told you kind of makes it a little bit better
1: the like muscle relaxant that you give because you can like really hurt yourself in a seizure because your body's like uncontrolled and flailing around um exactly Exactly.
0: yeah so if your body's all loosey-goosey you're exactly right the muscles just don't like go undergo the same kind of damage that they would in like a true grand mal big Mm -hmm. seizure yeah and because the muscle relaxants really the only part of the body that the doctor keeps not relaxed is part of the leg um or part of the arm i guess but it's mostly part of the leg because you want to be able to see the seizure kind of happening. Um, And if muscle relaxant kind of gets to that part, then you're not going to be able to see the leg like shaking. And so uh, we want to see it so we can know how long or ballpark, how long the seizure lasts. Oh, that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. So the ECT tech does the seizure, like, you know, starts the current and then your seizure starts and the leg starts shaking, it starts shaking, and then it stops. Does that mean the seizure's over? Oh, I feel
1: like this is a trick question. I feel like the answer is no. (laughs) Yeah, the answer is no. (laughs) Good
0: job, because actually, Shar, I realized I didn't even explain, and maybe you could explain um, to our listeners what a seizure is in the brain. What's going on?
1: A bunch of like Electrical activity happening in your brain, your neurons, which are the cells in your brain, literally are usually fire like in a pretty predetermined manner, I guess. But it's easier, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. everything's just happening at once. And there's not really like a, it, there's no like sense to the rhythm. It's just kind of happening. So your body is like freaking out because it's got too many things. It's being stimulated in too many ways. And there's no like control yeah. over it. Like it can like happen in one part of your brain or it can spread to like your entire brain.
0: No, that is what it is. It's pretty crazy. Because yeah, your brain is like doing all different things at once. It's like a master... Multitasker. But when you have a seizure, depending on the kind of seizure, you can have different groups of neurons, or maybe your whole brain just kind of has these pathways where neurons will fire kind of either all at the same time or out of sync or out of rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just causes overstimulation of your brain cells. And that's what a seizure is. And you can actually see a seizure on this thing called an EEG. So an EKG is like something that we use to look at how the heart beats and we look at the electrical um impulses of the heart. An EEG looks at the electrical impulses of the brain. But yeah, so while the seizure is happening, the EEG is going mm-hmm. and we're recording the brain waves to see like the seizure as well. Mm-hmm. But just because the leg, you know, you started your seizure, the leg was shaking. But just because it stopped shaking does not mean that the seizure is over. Um, Because if you think about electrical current moving around the brain, maybe like the part of the brain that controls that area of the leg might be being activated. But then that electrical impulse could move. Mm -hmm. And if it's working somewhere else and you're just not seeing any shaking, that doesn't mean that the patient's not seizing. It just means that you can't see it anymore. Like which I thought was
1: interesting. Yeah. It's kind of like how seizures, like dependent on where they are in the brain, can make your senses do different things. Like you could like taste something or you can like smell things like during a seizure, just if it like is in that part of the brain. Just kind of cool.
0: It is cool. Yeah. It's very interesting. But typically a seizure They want it to last, you know, it can last a few seconds to over two minutes. Um, And around two minutes, we actually, if that's what's happening um, and they have reached a two minute threshold, we usually give a medication to stop the seizure because we don't want a seizure to be too long. Mm -hmm. And whether it's two minutes or longer, there's really no like help to the symptoms at that point. It's like, okay, once you've hit two minutes, like you've kind of hit like a therapeutic threshold like it's not going to be helpful to go longer. Right. It's not going to cure your depression faster. Um, and actually fun fact that I learned on neurology this week was that the brain can actually seize for 30 minutes before we get really worried about permanent damage. Oh. Yeah. But we typically want to stop seizures at around the 5-minute mark. So if your brain's been continuously seizing for 5 minutes, that's when we, that's like, that's when we want to stop the seizure. Yeah. Um, But you could theoretically go for longer. Wow, it's just more that's dangerous. That's actually
1: wild. Considering like, isn't that crazy? Your heart can't go that long. Like, you know, having a heart attack. Yeah.
0: It's,
1: it's kind no, of crazy definitely your brain not. can go that long.
0: I know. I know. It was kind of a random fact though. But for ECT, the ideal seizure time for a good therapeutic effect is 30 seconds to two minutes. So you want to get a seizure to at least 30 seconds. Um, and it's doesn't always happen in some patients. Some patients are on different medications that might keep their seizures from happening. They might just have a low seizure or high seizure threshold. So they just don't seize easily. Hmm. So it's not easy for everyone. I had a patient on psychiatry who was getting ECT. And at first his seizures were like 10 seconds, 12 seconds. And we were like, no, they need to be longer. <laughs> <This isn't working. laughs> I know. Uh, Eventually, we got up to like 25, 45 seconds. It was it was good. But
1: yeah. Interesting.
0: Um, And then during this time while you're seizing, you know, people are watching your vital signs. So your blood pressure, heart rate, things like that. They tend to go up during these seizures, but that is pretty normal lots of people watching over you, keeping tabs on you. And typically the patient after they stop seizing and, you know, the doctor has looked at the EEG and is like, okay, yeah, this is how long the seizure was. This is them coming out of it. It looks good. Mm-hmm. Um, the patient will usually kind of wake up or come to, uh, after a few minutes and Shar, what do you think or know happens after seizures? In terms of like cognition and ability to think.
1: Um, sometimes you can have like a lot of confusion after seizures. You might come out of it and you're like, I don't really understand what just happened. Like, did I fall asleep? Like, I don't know what people think, but like they're kind of confused with the state of themselves and like their surroundings. And they kind of have to get like reoriented
0: to the world. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, most seizures, except for like very few, mm-hmm. um, come with confusion so most patients are confused after a seizure it's actually called something it's called post-ictal confusion Mm -hmm. so ictal means seizure um post-ictal confusion makes sense it's actually part of what we ask about when we you know are trying to determine like oh someone passed out is it because they had a seizure is it because they had you know an episode of lightheadedness but if you're lightheaded you could wake up and be totally fine yeah But if you had a seizure, you're probably going to be confused 15, 30 minutes, maybe even like an hour after.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And yeah, so this happens for any seizure, for any reason, not just ECT. You can get confused after really any seizure. Um, And so because of this, you obviously can't drive after your sessions uh, and you actually might have some like short term memory loss. So the Mm. time period that like 10 to 12 sessions, you like might have some, you know, memory lapses within that time period
1: makes sense takes a while for your neurons to consolidate a memory so if you're messing up the neurons firing you're gonna mess up your memories
0: yeah so that's what's happening and yeah that's just like a brief overview of like ect and how it works i know what questions do you have
1: i guess i want to know like how they came up with this
0: you know (laughs) I can provide that. Yes, I can provide that's the information that information. <laughs> I want. <laughs> okay, then let's just do it. Let's talk about the history of ECT, which is our second part. Yeah, like who thought of this?
1: Who was like, yeah, let's shock people's
0: brains? I know it's pretty crazy. So, the so I'll start with kind of just some background on the therapeutic use of electricity in general for medicine. So it actually dates back to classic ancient. Egypt, Rome, and Greece, actually, where they used current, different electrical currents produced by electric eels to treat oh. headaches, arthritis, and even to assist in obstetrical procedures, which is interesting. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I actually didn't like dive into it that much. It was kind of unclear. But actually, the Greek name for electrical eel They used at the time translated to the fish that causes numbness.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah,
0: I thought that was kind of fun. It's not like they, you know, these people understood what electricity was. They just noticed that the shock that came with touching this fish um, was helping people cure their headaches and back pain. And it was in the 1700s that quote unquote medical electricity became this popular option to treat different diseases, particularly nerve disorders. And it was actually a German professor named Georg Bose (laughs) that made using electricity fashionable as just like, he kind of made this like, he made it this attraction and a spectacle for people. So that was interesting. I'm sure it was like, come see this. New, like, medical
1: treatment, yeah, how crazy yeah, that's is. what it was,
0: yeah, yeah. But in particular, he had uh several writings in which he explained the theory of like male and female fire. Oh, um, okay, yeah, I think this is one of his shows. It was like, there's male and female fire that would explain, he thought it could explain like interpersonal attraction, repulsion. And beauty, like, beautiful appearance. Oh. And he would do these experiments where he would run electrical currents through people just to see how their bodies would react. Um, And he called it the electric kiss. They didn't actually kiss, but what? he was just, like, watching people kind of, like, have currents run through them.
1: Like, through two people?
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. I know. Yeah. It's just for fun. Just for show. Um, Around 1744, this guy named Johann Kruger, a professor of medicine and philosophy in Germany, reported that people who would subject themselves repeatedly to this electrical kiss thing um, would have involuntary muscle motions. And he thought that this could be maybe a treatment for different palsies, which palsies are just like involuntary tremors. And so he thought that, like, based on what he was seeing, maybe passing currents through people could, could help with tremors. Mm-hmm. And essentially, this practice kind of spread throughout Europe. It was seen as an attraction, but also like a fashionable thing to do. And then doctors started incorporating it, electricity into their practices. So this was electrotherapy to treat physical ailments. And you might be thinking... Hmm, Alicia, isn't this episode about ECT? Hmm. Are we treating psychiatric conditions? Yeah, what the heck? What's, what's <laughs> the what there? I know, I know, I read your mind. I know. Well, you're right. Same, as <laughs> you're <always>. right. <laughs> to understand how ECT for psychiatric conditions came about, we have to understand the state of psychiatric care in the 1700s and 1800s. So, Char, what do you think was the main explanation for mental illness in patients at this time? Like, why were they ill?
1: Because they were possessed. What was
0: Yeah. Yep. They were under the <laughs> devil's control. Yep. And they were driven to insanity by the devil. Obviously. The devil. Oh. He's always up to something. He's always
1: on to something. Controlling yeah. people one way or another
0: i know <laughs> so in this time period mental health care was basically non-existent and can you guess how many patients with severe mental illnesses actually got treated or how they like where did they go to get treated
1: to the priest who performed an exorcism
0: no, that's a reasonable <laughs> guess, though. They went to prison. Oh, they got treatment in prison? Yeah. They didn't get treatment because oh, there was no treatment. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or they were taken care of by their families if their families loved them and could take care of them.
1: I mean, honestly, it still happens today a little bit to guess and talk about later.
0: But yeah. No, very true. And uh, over the next decades, though, reformers, people like Dorothea Dix, they worked to have mental asylums built and then had those mental asylums actually run by the state. And okay. the moral treatment was the main way um, of treating psychiatric patients. That's kind of what we evolved to. And actually, the doctor, Benjamin Rush, was the person who was really important in developing this practice in the United States, this idea of like moral treatment, treating people with kindness, treating people with mental illness, like they, you know, Our had people. value and that they could yeah, yeah be, you know, cured or helped, um, that he kind of helped facilitate that and spread it throughout Europe. And so it was meant to counter demonic explanations of psychiatric conditions and basically Provide an appropriate environment to cure these patients because the physiologic basis for mental disorder by people who use the moral treatment was that insanity was caused by brain damage. That was their thought. And so they were like, we need to cushion these people. Yeah, you know, it's not that far off. It's pretty on then. Yeah. Yeah. Mental health care was attempting to take a turn for the better. But in the late 1800s, there was kind of this flood of immigration into the United States and that overrun the already overwhelmed state run psychiatric hospitals. And so then the quality of care declined, sadly. Yeah, yeah that's unfortunate. Yeah. But what was interesting was that in the late 1800s, people started to notice that for a variety of psych conditions, patients would improve clinically after episodes of fever. Oh, I know. So in 1917, this dude, Julius Wagner Jareg mm-hmm. from Vienna, Austria, tried to fix the symptoms associated with uh, neurosyphilis specifically. So basically for our purposes, if you have really, really bad syphilis, like it's like you like months, you know, never got any treatment for your syphilis or you were subjected to not have treatment for your syphilis due to the inherent racism of the country that you live in. You have syphilis that reaches this point that it gets really bad and affects your nervous system. And you get dementia too.
1: Mm, Okay.
0: Yeah, it actually makes you like lose sensation, like vibrate. You can't feel like vibration and stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: You use you you lose like touch, and yeah, I remember this now.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this guy, the dude Julius from Vienna, um, he wanted to fix the symptoms associated with syphilis, like fixing the dementia and the nervous system problems, and so he started trying to induce fever in these patients by injecting them with the blood of people with malaria. Oh my God.
1: (laughs) This is coming up too much in my life. Not injecting blood, but malaria. I
0: know. That's actually super interesting. Because
1: malaria is characterized by relapsing fevers that come and go. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. So of the first nine patients that he did this to... Three of them had a full recovery. Um, three of them had a temporary recovery and then three of them had no change. So it was a pretty mixed bag. Mm-hmm. But this was important because Julius had essentially opened a door for the biological therapy of mental illness. Right. It's like this is a
1: biological right. thing, not a. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what else
0: it could be a thing. <laughs> a devil worshiping thing. Yeah, like a
1: not medical thing. <laughs> Like it is medical, I guess, is the point.
0: Yeah. Now we're like, that was in like 1917 or something. Now we're hanging out in the 1930s. so recent. I know. It's actually a really interesting time, um, in particular for the history and treatment of schizophrenia. Hmm. And at that time, there were four treatments that doctors would do. So the first was insulin shock therapy, where doctors would give insulin to patients. Shar, do you want to explain? I'm asking you a lot of questions today.
1: You know, this is a lot of medical questions. I just took an eight-hour <laughs> medical exam yesterday. I'm very overwhelmed. Well, you know
0: what? I'm just keeping you on your toes. So, I mean, you don't like, have I to didn't do any explaining.
1: Hypoglycemia by giving like, yes. a bunch of insulin. Why? What yes, does that that's do what they want. Though?
0: Oh, good question. So basically like for the for the fans, for the listeners, <laughs> um, insulin basically is the hormone that makes sugar enter your body cells. And so you need a certain amount of sugar just to exist in your blood, like super happy. Um, but when you have too much insulin, you can get low blood sugar or hypoglycemia, like Charlotte mm. was saying. And that's what they were trying to do because when you have hypoglycemia, you can induce a convulsion. mm.
1: Yeah, a weird so they way were trying to
0: induce to... a seizure. I know, but I guess like, I kind of understand because, like, what other way did they have at yeah. the time, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So they were trying to induce the seizure basically, but the trouble was, kind of like you're saying, it wasn't a reliable method, like, it wasn't the best way. It, it wasn't your brain, could just like, die. Yeah, your brain, like, like, it
1: wasn't great. Your brain needs sugars to function like it's very very no objectively you're correct (laughs)
0: like not good um and it wasn't really helping that many patients Hmm. so then like that was insulin shock therapy then they were like okay maybe we pivot and try psychosurgery oh so any ideas what this might have entailed like you've probably heard of it taking
1: lobes out of the brain
0: yeah just taking pieces away yeah. So lobotomy. Yeah. So this is basically where the surgeon would, this is kind of gruesome. So skip ahead if you don't want to hear, but they'd basically like drill a hole into the person's skull and until they saw like the frontal lobe, so the front part of the brain, and they would either like suction out parts of the frontal lobe. Oh my God. Um, Or they would like stick something in there and kind of like scramble up the frontal oh my lobe. God. It was really heinous. It was so bad. Yeah. Also going the in frontal lobe, the
1: frontal lobe. Why no other other lobe? I guess. Well, I so, understand why, but like, man, they really went for like the big guns, like going through the frontal lobe. I know,
0: but you know, and you understand why. But I'll explain to everyone else yes, who's listening absolutely. who maybe doesn't know is that the frontal lobe is responsible for your decision making, a higher level thoughts, things like that, it's like and your so personality. It is, it is your personality, and without it, patients kind of become disinhibited, so they would make choices that they wouldn't have usually made. They'd become like sexually provocative and just like really out there. Yeah, like doing a lot of stuff that they normally wouldn't do because they used to have impulse control and now they don't. Mm -hmm. Um, And so but when you have a lobotomy, your entire frontal lobe is gone and you're kind of just like even beyond like making weird choices, when you don't have any kind of frontal lobe, you just become like a shell of a human.
1: Yeah, because at that point you're just like, a machine like functioning, yeah. like you're just a bunch of things
0: happening,
1: but you don't have like a consciousness in a way.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're just an empty human. You're, yeah. and it's alarming, it's freaky. And so people would do lobotomies on patients with schizophrenia. Hmm. Yeah, but they also would try to induce convulsions with medications or drugs. And so the first guy who did this was a Hungarian man in 1934 named Ladislaus von Meduna. It's a sick name. It's, it's a <laughs> really dope name. Um, and he believed that schizophrenia and epilepsy were antagonists. So chemically, like antagonists being opposites. And so chemically inducing convulsions he thought could help with psychotic features of schizophrenia, like hallucinations and delusions, which are two hallmark Mm -hmm. traits of schizophrenia. And he first tried this substance called camphor, which is from the bark in the wood of the camphor tree and used it to induce seizures in patients with schizophrenia. And The thing is, though, the issue that he came across was that it had a lot of side effects. So people would have seizures, sure, but then they'd also have low mood, nausea, confusion, all this stuff. In 1938, two psychiatrists in Italy did the first electroshock therapy or electroconvulsive therapy um, using an instrument that could produce an electric current. So that's the first ECT. Oh, wow. Yeah,
1: really and for it. this
0: kind of, I know, and it spread in popularity. Um, and by the 1950s, it became actually a pretty standard treatment of care for uh, people in the hospital with depression. Hmm. Something that's important to point out here is that camphor, ECT, these things were inducing grand mal seizures, which are seizures that occur throughout the brain, like every single neuron is firing. And I don't know if any of you have seen a grand mal seizure before. Um, I have seen one. They are very, very intense. Mm-hmm. And your body is basically like writhing. Um, you lose control of your body. Some people have like incontinence, like they'll pee themselves or they'll bite their tongue or the inside of their mouth, mm-hmm. it's, like oral trauma. Um, their muscles get very like tight. Um or very loose, and they alternate, it's pretty scary to watch. Yeah, And so that's basically what they were inducing in these patients. Wow. Without probably yeah. the precautions of today. Yeah, exactly. They didn't have any anesthesia. It wasn't until the 1940s and 50s when medications finally came out to anesthetize the patients um, who were starting on ECT or who were doing ECT. And this decreased A lot of the risks associated with ECT, like bone breaking, muscle spasms, etc. Oh my god,
1: their bones used to break. I guess they're like older too.
0: Yeah, their bones used to break because of how violently they jerk. God. I know. But interestingly, like 1940s, 50s, you're like, wow, ECT is peaking. This is crazy. This is awesome. We're helping cure these mental disorders that are really. Severe. But then from 1960 to like the 1980s, ECT kind of disappeared. Oh. Why? Good question. I was actually gonna ask you, but I'll just tell you. I don't know why. So So it was actually a combination of the 1960s counterculture vibe. Mm. Um, where it was like ECT is this like bad thing, and we're going against it. And it was also the time that this movie came out called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Have you heard of that? No. <laughs> well, I'd heard the name. I've never seen it. But um, apparently it painted ECT and lobotomy as like the same thing or similar. Oh, And so they were kind of seen as like really gruesome things that... Uh, was going to be used as punishment for people with deviant behavior right. and so it was like kind of portrayed in this negative light
1: oh yeah i feel like i would yeah i still hear that often
0: yeah yeah um but by the 1990s it kind of became this treatment for pharmacologically resistant or refractory depression um because people kind of just like overcame those biases and one flew over the cuckoo's nest is clearly not this like super popular film anymore yeah um and so yeah that's that's kind of how we like phased out of that mm-hmm. and like you said it still like lingers today these thoughts of like what is ECT is it safe um, am I crazy for getting I mean, it? Blah, honestly, blah, blah. if you
1: ask most people today, I feel like they would say it doesn't even happen.
0: I I really didn't know much
1: about it until I like kind of learned in school that it happens. And I was like, Oh, I didn't realize this was still a treatment.
0: Yeah, yeah. Cause it's really, I mean, it's used very often, but it's not the first line treatment for depression. Yeah. Yeah. And there's like a lot of kind of a lot, like a lot of points you get through before you get to ECT. So yeah, but um, that's what we use today. Great. I thought we could talk about women and how ECT pertains to women doing our thing, (laughs) looking at this from a feminist perspective, all that stuff. (laughs) And breaking this down kind of starts with thinking about who experiences mental distress. All of us, all of us experience mental distress, but particularly women, people of color, anyone who's been othered or left out or anything like that yeah and so women are up to 40 percent more likely than men to develop mental health conditions and 75 percent more likely than men to have suffered from depression wow
1: those are crazy stats.
0: i know i know and it's been posited or like thought of that this occurs because women are more likely to suffer from like quote-unquote internal problems because they tend to take problems out on themselves while men tend to externalize their problems and this is actually like being angry like being angry um like having higher rates of substance use Mm -hmm. those things like are typical more typical in in men Mm -hmm. isn't that interesting yeah wow so, with knowing this and thinking about the utility of ECT, um, women throughout history have been more likely to receive it just generally right um, yeah, women who who were diagnosed with depression and hysteria, women who've been oversexualized, branded as promiscuous, um, they're sexual but not sexual enough or not sexual in the right ways. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things. And then I also think about the rest cure mm-hmm. and the madness that women were driven to by their own society to uh, treat depression. The
1: rest the rest cure is probably still one of the most like insane things we have
0: covered. It is I know
1: wild. It comes up again and again ever
0: since we did it. It's crazy. I know it's 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 really nuts. I can I'll never forget the beef. The beef. The, eating the singular (laughs) beef oh god it's so weird Uh, but all all these things basically it they make sense they it it makes sense to me that women receive ect two to three times more often than men oh my god and and in a study from is it's kind of old in 1974 69 percent of patients that received ect were women
1: it makes sense like for the use and for the stats of
0: you know, who has depression, and things like that adds up a little bit. The thing is, though, like ECT is so safe these days. So it's not really like an issue of of getting it. It truly is just like a purely therapeutic thing. And maybe that's just my opinion. But I just think it's not an issue if more women are getting ECT now than yeah. they were before. But back before anesthesia, when convulsions could literally break bones, that's Troubling, yeah. That you know, more women are we're getting it, and it all kind of ties back to like, why are rates of ECT higher in women? What leads women to have higher rates of depression? And all of these kind of general like thoughts Mm -hmm. that I think honestly, like I could talk about them, but I think they warrant more of a discussion. Yeah, I'm down. Great. I think we should deconstruct these thoughts and talk about it in Feminist Corner. Let's do it. All right, ma'am, we're back. Back at it. Back at it again. Mm-hmm. Tell me your thoughts. What are you thinking? and then we'll dive into more discussion about
1: feminism yeah so there were like two things stood out to me one was um the use of eels It's like super interesting for how that is what started like the use of like electricity in the medicine I guess because it's just it's like as if you stumbled upon a plant and you figured out it's like herbal properties and then you were like oh my god these herbal properties have medical properties and like I can use this as medicine or poison or like whatever. Like you figure out things about the world, but an eel is so specific because I don't even know where I would go to find an eel. If I was in the wild, like where would I, where would I go to get an eel? Are there eels in the Mediterranean? Cause that's what I'm hearing <laughs> right now. It sounds like there's eels in the Mediterranean if all these Mediterranean countries are using it. So they literally just stumbled upon these things and were like, let's put this on a person and see what happens <laughs> you know like, like a fisherman or something touched the eel and was like my hand I can't feel it and then they went to the doctor and they were like oh my god this is crazy and now I don't know a whole field came from that in the future it's crazy like what if that was never discovered then this would never be where it is that just blows my mind that's very meta okay yeah my second thing was a lot of psychiatric people went to prison in the past because that was like the way of treatment and honestly it's like that today a lot too specifically with substance abuse and like going to prison and how like a lot of prisoners can be like addicts who actually should go to rehabilitation centers and get the help they need instead of going to prison where it's not going to get any better and could p- potentially get worse so it's like interesting to see how like past like issues are still an issue today because mental health is still being reconfigured in society and- trying to be yeah. understood and accepted more. And um people are definitely way more accepting of like mood disorders today, which are things like depression and bipolar disorder and you know, things like that. But there's a lot of things that are not accepted. Like accepting substance abuse as a mental health disorder is like really hard to understand. But it is a mental health yeah. disorder and like various other mental health disorders that aren't as mainstream, I guess. It's interesting to see like how mental disorders are starting to be perceived and accepted and which yeah. ones aren't and how no, that relates that is very to the past and how with people like used to be treated across the spectrum the prison thing reminded me of that that's always like really sad that people could go to rehabilitation centers instead of places that are going to harm them more and that happens every day today which
0: is really sad yeah no that is a very interesting point of you're right that like mood disorders are viewed in a certain way versus like substance use disorders are viewed in a certain way and there's truly like a biological component to all of them mm-hmm. there's true brain chemistry changes that happen with all of these but because we can't see it it's way harder to grasp yeah but yeah okay so we're thinking about ECT it's this treatment for really severe mood disorders um like depression so what factors do you think may have led women to become ECT candidates and also specifically i'd love to just like think about or talk about this in the context of the time period during which ECT was like particularly bad like particularly gnarly where there was no anesthesia or anything like that what does it mean that women were the prime candidates for ECT.
1: Yeah. I mean, like you said, women women have really high rates of depression and it's been like that in the past too. Why women were targeted, I would say one, because it's the same idea of kind of the rescuer and hysteria and types of things that women were trying to be put in like one category of what you're supposed to be and act like. And if you weren't like that, then there was something really wrong with you. So then there was a bunch of people trying to make women how they wanted them to be by calling them hysterical or giving them the rest cure and like all these crazy treatments that men didn't have to go through to be like the type of man society wanted them to be. So Mm -hmm. things like ECT are like perfect things for like how can we change women into being like the woman we want them to be let's Mm -hmm. shock their brain because obviously there's something wrong with their brain because they're not acting like society wants them to act um so they're like a good vulnerable population for that too and it's especially bad because like you said the lack of anesthesia so it's painful and super dangerous it also just really calls back to like um like Betsy and Lucy and and Ananarka yeah and like women in the past being like their bodies being used experimentally and not with care over yeah. how they're feeling yeah. about the procedure. And like at a time when ECT was maybe growing in psychology and they were like, oh, my God, this is really working, but not really taking the step back to be like, OK, it's working. But are the patients OK? Like as we do this, like, is this safe? It's this the right thing to do. Are we actually taking care of these people? Um, and there seems like there's already a tradition in medicine that that wasn't the thought at the time to worry about. So that was, didn't even like cross their mind. And since like women have been treated like that in the past, that just perpetuates until like someone finally makes a change.
0: No, I agree with a lot of that. I think you brought up like really good points. And I think something that I was also thinking about in conjunction with what you were saying is like, specifically, I was focusing honestly on like women's suffering Mm -hmm. Um, because in my mind I was like women's suffering wasn't prioritized and isn't in a lot of ways today but at the time I was thinking like their suffering wasn't prioritized because helping them quote-unquote get better fits just what you were saying like it's fitting them into the constraints that society values Mm -hmm. like society placed these values on them and they fit them into a box and if you were outside of that box then you needed to be constrained um like you needed to be happy but not too happy and like smart but not too smart and I think all of those things like manifested as pain Mm -hmm. for women but their pain and suffering wasn't prioritized um and instead you know resorting to ECT which was also painful at the time mm-hmm. was kind of a no-brainer because it was like a oh but it's for your own good or like right. going through this suffering will help you in the long run and so you just do it um and not that I know I like don't know any women who had ECT done at this time so I I can't speak to them and and hear what they have to say um because maybe some of them wanted it like some, you know, maybe they were tired of being catatonic and sad and, and wanted relief from that. But I don't know. I think about that with lobotomy too. It's like a similar concept. And, and when I ever, I think about lobotomy, I always think about Rosemary Kennedy. Do you know? No, I don't know. Oh my God. This is going to blow your mind. So Rosemary Kennedy, so Rosemary Kennedy was the sister of John F. Kennedy and Robert and Teddy Kennedy.
1: Mm, oh, man. Yes.
0: A presidential and family. She, very
1: scandalous, very political.
0: Oh, I know. And she basically experienced seizures and like violent mood swings and all this stuff. And so when she was 23, her dad arranged for her to have a prefrontal lobotomy. Oh, my God.
1: At 23?
0: Yeah. yeah. Wow. I know. And the procedure left her permanently incapacitated and she couldn't speak like any like intelligible words or anything like that. Wow. Yeah. And then they proceeded to keep her a secret for her entire life. And she was in like institutions and stuff. She was like kept in institutions and she was like a secret for decades. And she did like struggle with like mental illness. Like she, you know, had some developmental issues that contributed to that, but that doesn't mean you lobotomize someone.
1: Yeah. Disability does not equal dehumanizing someone.
0: Exactly. Wow. Um, And so when I think about her and lobotomy, I also think about, you know, the parallels to that with women and ECT. I mean, not as extreme, of course, because ECT actually does so much good for people and lobotomy has no clinical utility at all. Yeah, don't remove parts um, of the body that
1: don't need to be removed. Like the gallbladder, you can get rid of that. It's fine. But lobes of the brain, no.
0: <laughs> but um, I guess like my last question is just like, what's one takeaway that you would like to share with our listeners, Shar, about ECT? Maybe how your mind's changed about it or like something you learned?
1: Um. I would say be more open-minded to types of medicine. Um, I think medical treatments, I don't think, I know medical treatments are always changing and they're always figuring out new things and science is always evolving. So if things seem scary, then like that's okay. But if you can like learn more about it and figure out what it is and what's going on with it, because like if BCT is really helpful and like you, you are someone who has like refractory, depression or bipolar and that's something you want to explore and talk to your healthcare provider about like you should why not like why not try different medical treatments if they've been well studied and are accepted by the medical community as safe then it's something worth trying um and there's just a lot of medicine out there so it's super overwhelming and i know like many people who are just overwhelmed by even the idea of like an antidepressant because they take 2 months to work and it's very overwhelming but give, they give medicine a chance to help you, I guess. Um, and I didn't, I didn't expect ECT to be so helpful, I guess,
0: for a lot of people. It is, it's actually really incredible the outcomes that people have. And actually this is really sweet. I'll end with this story. Um, the doctor I was working with when I was doing like the ECT sessions, he was telling me about like a patient that he had who a lot of teenagers actually get ECT because mm. um they experience like a lot of really intense mood disorders and depression and um there was like a patient he had who came in got ECT as a teenager went through all the treatments and stuff and then like was able to like kind of overcome her like really low lows of depression mm-hmm. and actually has been able to come out of it and now she like is like in college and it's like so wonderful and she actually got like a little lightning bolt tattoo oh
1: it's so cute
0: yeah isn't that cute so I'll end with that because that's like a really nice little uplifting thought that ECT is really beneficial and can help a lot of people
1: yeah for sure
0: yeah and if you want to help a lot of people you can uh Help us grow our podcast you can by subscribing. Alicia and I and
1: all of our listeners who can learn more and more and more.
0: Yeah. By subscribing to our podcast, we're on all the podcasting apps. Uh, and then you can leave us a rating and review. And Apple Podcast is the best place to do that. Yeah. And you can also follow us
1: on social media. We have an Instagram and a Facebook, which are at From Source to Scrubs. And a Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. And you can also check out our website for more information. We have our show notes on there. We have our sources. We have our merch. And that's all at fromscritscrubs.com. And then lastly, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yay! Yay! (laughs) All right, everyone. We'll see you next time.